it's been like a couple months now, right? Um, yeah, I yeah. launched my podcast a few months ago, and it was really, it's really fun, and it's really exciting, and I've gotten yeah. to interview all kinds of people like John Hodgman yeah. and Michael Ian Black and Jill Soloway, the creator of Transparent, and so it's really fun. It's just you... you Decided you didn't have enough things on your plate at the time? Yes. I was like, I don't have enough things on my plate with, you know, I'm working on two books right now and I do shows and I'm I'm doing a tour and all kinds of things. And I was like, you know what? What do I need in my life? A podcast. What was the... What was the thinking behind that? You just wanted, there's just like a a part of your brain you weren't working out? No, I just really miss podcasts. Mm. Like, I really miss, I I used to do a podcast called Sex and Other Human Activities with Marcus Parks on Cave Comedy Radio. And I left that two years ago because I moved to Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I miss podcasting. I miss the intimacy that happens in the the relationship you have with your listeners. I missed all of that. And so I was approached actually by Patreon, um, which is... uh, a crowdfunding resource. I didn't know they actually did outreach. Like they, they, they actually help people start projects. Um, yeah. I mean, I think people who they think have a social media footprint and who yeah. will promote it. And so they reached out to me and, um, so I decided to fund it through patreon.com. So yeah. that's what to do. I have uh, patreon.com slash Sarah Benicaza. And then through that people can subscribe for like a dollar a month. And they, or they can contribute a dollar a month or more to um, in the Casa yeah. podcast. So it's great. And that's work, that's working out. That, it's that, great. Okay. Yeah, some people contribute a dollar. Some people contribute a hundred dollars mm. a month. Um, it's really great. So I feel like everybody's looking for like one one blanket solution that's going to work for for everybody moving ahead. But it doesn't seem like we're really head, heading in that direction. Actually, make money doing a podcast. It's difficult. I mean, for some people, the subscription model is appropriate. For yeah. some people, the Patreon model is appropriate. For other people, you know, the selling advertising is appropriate. I didn't want to sell advertising. I wanted to do kind of a PBS pledge fund <laughs> drive kind of situation yeah. where people get different things in return for contributing. So it's a fun, it's an interesting economic model. Um, there are other podcasts that use it too. There are podcasts who will do Kickstarter yeah. to fund themselves. Like there's all kinds of stuff out there. You've, 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 you've been through the, the Kickstarter Gambit. Yes, I did a tour. I'm still doing a tour. Yeah. Um, it's called You're This Tour. Is, on tour right I'm now. technically on tour right now. It's called This Tour is So Gay. Yeah. And it is a tour where I stop in various cities around the U.S. and Canada. And then I do a performance mm-hmm. or a book signing. I do an appearance. And then I also, on out of my own money, not out of my Kickstarter money, make a donation to a local LGBTQ youth group. And so um, I was able to donate to a lot of places last year, which was really exciting. And there'll be more this year. How are those, how are those two things connected? Um, well, I wrote a book called Great, which is a YA novel, which is about two girls who fall in love or mutual obsession. It's up to you, the reader, to figure it out. It's inspired by Gatsby, but with teen girls in the Hamptons. And it came out last year, and I wanted to do a book tour, but um, I didn't get funded by my my publishing company, Harper Teen. So instead, I decided to do a Kickstarter to fund it. So I go around and, you know, I do book events or I do comedy events, and I kind of promote the book. And then at the same time, I also raise some kind of money or provide help to an LGBTQ youth organization. 
It's just so so it's a, so it, it's kind of a, it's kind of a it's a book tour of sorts. It's just a long it's ongoing a, book it's tour. It's a book tour. It's a comedy yeah. tour. It's a million different things at once. So it's um it's fun. I mean I I enjoy it. I guess last year I did. Seattle, Indianapolis. Yeah. Oh gosh, where else did I go? I went to. I was in LA. I was in San Francisco. I was in other places. I can't remember right now. I was. That's kind of nice, place. though. Like you know, this it's it's a it's certainly a change from the old just get it, getting in the van. You know, doing doing a, a coast to coast comedy tour of just kind Absolutely. of getting to, to pick and choose places. I just thought, you know, I'm going to raise fifteen grand and I'm going to do something good in each town yeah. that I visit. Yeah. I'm going to give back to each town that I visit. So I, what I try to do is I try to stay in a locally owned establishment when I can, if that's on offer, if that's within my budget. Mm. I try to eat at locally owned places. I try to meet people and have them show me around the town. I try to give back to the town. And then I also either do direct service or make a monetary contribution. And so far, it's just it's just been monetary contributions to um, a local LGBTQ youth group because my book, Great, has to do with LGBTQ youth issues. So, 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 wait, so it's either money or you're like you're you know you're actually gonna uh, find a place where you can actually they'll put you to work. Yeah, I mean, if they need me to fold, you know, pamphlets, or if they need yeah. me to mail envelopes for them, or they need me to answer phones, like whatever, I'm up yeah. for that. So maybe I'll do that coming up. Um, I'm I'm working on arranging a date in Toronto. And actually in Chicago, I already made my donation to a place called the Center on Halstead, but I'll be in Chicago on sun, Saturday, March 21st. I don't know if this will come out before then. God willing. Yeah. yeah so Saturday, March 21st, I'll be performing at a show called the Paper Machete, yeah. which is at the Green Mill at 3 p.m. And okay. so I'm performing at someone else's show in Chicago. So that's my yeah. Chicago appearance. And then my Chicago donation is to uh, the Center on Halstead, which does a lot of cool work with, with LGBTQ youth and adults. How much uh, have, have you... Uh, was there been a point in your career when you've just done sort of straight stand-up comedy? Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. That's how I started. Who's kind of all over the place comedy-wise. Yeah, I, um, I started out in stand-up. So yeah. I started out in, I think, 2006 perhaps in stand-up comedy and I started out doing bringer shows mm-hmm. where you have to bring a certain yep. number of people and in order to get any stage time and so everybody starts there yeah a lot of people or they start in open mics I yeah. wouldn't recommend bringers to anybody because it's really just a way to gouge your friends and yeah. family um, you should start in open mics that only, but, that only probably works the first couple times right, right. Yeah, yeah well and they get annoyed or they're super nice and you're asking them to spend a cover yeah. plus price of two drinks generally speaking which is a lot of money so it's much better to start out in open mics yeah. and to do that and meet comics there and work your way up that way so I started out in Bringers, though, and um, I had a lot of fun and met some cool people. And then from there, I ended up starting my own comedy show called Family Hour with Auntie Sarah, which was stand-up and stories in a basement at a club that doesn't exist anymore called Comics. Mm-hmm. And uh, the club was, the little basement was called Ochi's Lounge, and that's where I would do stuff. And then... Um, I segued into radio in 2008. I started working for MTV News doing stuff on the web and then also doing some, like, some... I did a few TV hits for MTV News. And then I got hired at Sirius XM and did a radio show for two years that I hosted and produced, it, produced co-hosted and produced. Were, were, were you... I mean, were you expecting to just be to, to be a straight stand-up and these other things kind of came along um, at some point? Yeah. Yeah, well, I always wanted to be a writer. Yeah. I always wanted to write books. Yeah. That was my number one thing that I wanted to do. And I just 
found that stand-up was a way to get my writing heard mm. in public and a way to get a real reaction from people. I mean, it's really yeah. the exciting thing about comedy is that you can provoke a real physical reaction from folks through laughter and that's pretty amazing there aren't many careers in which you get to do that did, did you did the writing was the writing you were doing at the time did it translate that well to stand-up because it seems like writing jokes and you know sitting down and writing a book or two very different pursuits i was writing jokes first okay um i mean i i, I wrote stories when i was a kid yeah. and i always wanted to write books but that the books didn't come until later i started out in around 2006 writing jokes and then I found that I just wanted to tell longer stories. And so from there, I, um, I, I developed a one-woman show called Agora Fabulous, which was about a time in my life when I was agoraphobic or dealing with agoraphobia. agoraphobia. Yeah. I still deal with it, but it was more active at the time. Um, and so I just went around the country and told stories about being agoraphobic. Let's let, let's let's get really basic on this because you know, explain to me. I think we, everybody has sort of a vague sense of what that means, yeah. You know of what that entails, um, but it just seems it's it's kind of an abstract notion to me for the most part, right? So, what, what is what is your day to day life like, or what was it like at the height of that? Well, it was difficult. I mean, so phobia is fear, and agora yeah. is marketplace. So the actual translation of agoraphobia is uh, fear of the marketplace. So supermarkets, shopping malls. Right. But <laughs> but in actuality, it's about fear of being around people, yeah. fear of open spaces, fear of being outside your comfort zone, whatever that means to you. And so for me, it eventually became fear of being outside my home. Yeah. And so uh, it was. It was rough. I didn't leave my house at a certain point. I didn't leave my bedroom. Um, it was really. It was a tough time. Agoraphobia and stand-up comedy. Those are two things that I can't really reconcile in my brain. Yeah. <laughs> the, the desire to, the, the 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 inability to go outside and the desire to stand up in right. front of as many people. Well, but by, by the time I started doing stand-up, I was medicated and had been for many years, yeah. and I had also been in therapy for many years. Yeah. And so by the time I got into stand-up, um, my agoraphobia was under control. Okay. And so I was able to leave the house. I was able to travel. I was able to lead a really full life. And I guess uh, there was a point in my agoraphobia when it was so bad that I was really, really, really far down. And so I just decided, hey... I feel like living now, which is yeah. exciting because yeah. I didn't before, and now I want to live. So, you know, fuck it. Why not throw caution to the wind and just, like, do whatever I want to do? Not even whatever I want to do, but let me do the, the, the thing that I fear the most, right? Well, I didn't fear yeah. it the most. I always liked telling stories in front of people, yeah. um, whether that was on the page or at a dinner party or on stage. I always enjoyed that. So... I just I had always wanted to, but I never thought I was good enough or funny enough, mm. and so I just thought, hell, I'm going to try it, and so I did, and it was really it ended up you know changing my life for the better, and my my memoir Agora Fabulous is really about that transition and about how comedy you know helped change my life. Yeah, you, you didn't you must have had a little bit of stage fright at the at the beginning. No stage fright. No stage fright. No yeah. nervousness. Sure, yeah. some anxiety and. But no stage fright. Yeah. Definitely not. Um, I just, I really enjoyed it. I loved being on stage because I felt free in a sense. I felt that I could be whoever I wanted to be. Um, if, and I, when I got on stage, I left behind the problems of my day-to-day. -day, and my job was to entertain the audience. And so that's what I did. And 
um, that was really wonderful. And of course, I liked my ego liked the attention when yeah. it was positive. You know, sure. I liked the attention. R- roughly, uh, r- roughly, what what uh, what age does does the uh, is the book set in? So, Agora Fabulous, my memoir. That's my first yeah. book. That follows me from I would say ages seventeen to about thirty. I think a thirty thirty one. Yeah, but that's when it really broke. Uh, it was a really the hardest. It started when I was ten, and it got to be the worst when I was twenty one. Okay, and that was the most difficult time. So and right then post college. Oh no, I was in college. Junior I was college. a junior in college at Emerson yeah. College, and I ended up dropping out of school and going home to recover. And then I went to a school called Warren Wilson College in Asheville, North Carolina, which is really wonderful. And that's where I finally finished my degree. And then later, um, I did AmeriCorps in the Southwest, and I taught high school. And then I went to Teachers College at Columbia University because I thought I wanted to be a high school teacher. I mean, I always knew I wanted to be a writer, but I knew I had to support myself in that endeavor in some way. So I figured teaching. Yeah. And then I realized that what I really liked about teaching was the being up in front of people part of it, which does not a great teacher make. Teaching is not a good thing to do as a side project exactly. to support your other projects. Because teaching is all-consuming. It must be a calling, I yeah. feel. It truly must. Because you're doing a disservice to the kids otherwise. And they can tell when, what teachers can tell when kids aren't yeah. fully invested in what they're doing. It's nice being the funny teacher, though, right? <laughs> I mean, oh, I was very fun. You know, I was yeah. 23. I had, like, pink streaks in my hair. I was was totally weird and I still I mean I'm still friendly with some of those kids who you know now they're in their 20s and they're grown-ups and I'm like dude I'm so sorry I was such a bad teacher and they're like no way you were fun and I'm like yeah I didn't teach you anything yeah but yeah it was just a good time so 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 early on I mean you know when, when, when it really when it really went full bore I mean how did it how did it manifest itself? Was it gradual? Did you just wake up one morning and you couldn't really... No. No, I describe it as like painting oneself into a corner. Yeah. So it started when I had a panic attack. You know, let's say, for argument's sake, it was, not argument's sake, for the sake of the story, let's say it was in a movie theater. So yeah. I had a panic attack in a movie theater. I thought, oh, I can't go to this particular movie theater anymore. And then I had it in another movie theater. And I thought, oh, okay, no movie theaters at all. And then I had one in a grocery store. And I thought, okay... No more so, grocery so stores. Head, this is something that you've kind of been dealing with, you know, here and there, and now it's just and really it, starting it to really went rear its head. full tilt boogie yeah. as I got older, yeah. and certainly in college, it eventually got really bad, um, and it, it got really bad my junior year in college, and really all of 2001, it was bad, and it got worse in the fall, and um, so eventually, I ended up going home and dropping out of school and getting therapy and doing cognitive behavioral therapy and um, reading a book called Full Catastrophe Living by John Kabat-Zinn and doing a program called the Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction Program that he designed with a cardiologist named Saki Santorelli. Um, and when that was enormously helpful. It was really helpful. So you, you were... You were you were kind of self-diagnosed or you were trying to... Oh, no, no, no. no, no. Okay. no. I was, at a, I was yeah. in... You know, I was pretty pretty um actively involved in psychiatric therapy was was it was it a source of shame for you early on i mean i said you know obviously Um, you you came to grips with it you you wrote a book about it yeah you know i think when i was a teenager and i was having panic attacks and depression it was a it was a source of some difficulty but like when you don't know what it is it's probably sure i mean it was also it was embarrassing and the other kids didn't necessarily understand my friends didn't necessarily get it didn't really understand it early on not fully but um definitely it was something i was quite open about in my 20s and beyond you know i'm 34 now and it's something that 
I really find it helpful to talk about. It helps me to talk about. I just was, you know, I was just at therapy before this for like an hour. And um, it was uh, very helpful to talk about it. I mean, I feel somewhat emotionally drained at the moment, but um, I had a good time. It was good stuff. Should have got you before therapy. We should have got you. So like <laughs> full of all of those 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 emotional juices. Oh my god, no! <laughs> um, I'm like stressing out. So so you know, obviously you 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 had a book and you you wanted to write a book. That was that was the goal. Absolutely. Well, just, I, I wanted to write a book that would help people yeah. who were going through the same kind of thing okay. that I was. That was really important to me. Yeah. I wanted to I wanted a book to create a book that would comfort people and would make them feel less alone. That was very important to me and, and I hope that I achieved that with Agora Fabulous. And you had already dealt with it to the point where you were um you, you felt you felt really up. There wasn't any aspect of it that you were embarrassed well, to talk about? By the time I wrote the book, no. There were moments that yeah. were embarrassing, but none of the like embarrassing moments in the book are what people would predict. You know, there's some pretty graphic portions of, of the book that I won't repeat here in public um, <laughs> that, you know, involve me not taking care of myself physically. And those parts are what people would think would be yeah. the most embarrassing because they're quite, you know, me regressing to like an infantile state. But um, but they're not. The, there were other parts that were were more embarrassing for me and it was quite uh, but but really I was just you know I had practice sharing these stories on stage yeah. for a couple of years before the book actually came out so it was um, for three years before the book came out I was doing this one woman show pretty regularly and so I was used to people knowing about these different things that I had done and that had happened in my brain it, it's obviously, uh, you know, very, it's a, a, a very specific condition. But do you, do you feel like, you know, especially when you're getting up there in the early days, um, people don't really know what to expect. Do you, do you feel like? Do you feel like it was, it's universal enough that people get it? Yes, that there are sort of like aspects of it that yes, it, maybe everybody has to some degree. Definitely, because it's about fear, and yeah. that's pretty universally relatable. Yeah, I mean that I think can. Absolutely, anybody can relate to the idea of being afraid, right? So it's about fear. And so yeah. I think that's why people relate to it and people like it, even if they're like, what the hell is this chick talking about? It? I've never had this experience in my life. Yeah, I guess I, I guess the, the, the part that's sort of maybe hard for a lot of people to, to grapple with, people who haven't been through that specifically or, or similar conditions, is fear of something seemingly so irrational or something that like... Mm-hmm. You can't really point to specifically what you're afraid of, right? Well, uh, it's a fear of fear. Sometimes when you have a panic attack, it's triggered by specific things that you are actually afraid of. But other times, it's just the fear of fear. And that is hard to explain to people. I mean, it's not rational because your rational brain isn't isn't what's dominant in that moment. When you know nothing's going to happen to you if you leave the apartment today. Um, Consciously, yes, you might know that. But it's the fear of what if. It's what if, and we're all afraid of what if to an extent. Some of us are just acutely conscious of it. Yeah. You know, sometimes I think anxiety disorders are like hyper awareness of what could happen. Is what? So was it? Um, you know, were, were the what if scenarios were, were they were they specific things, or was it just the idea that potentially anything could leave happen oh, the moment I leave my house? It was the idea that I could have a panic attack when I left mm. my house, and panic so attacks kind feel of terrible. Exactly. It yeah. was a bit of a cycle. So, yeah. you know, in a, when you have a panic attack, you feel like you're going to die. So naturally, if you have that feeling uh, enough times in certain areas, you're going to avoid those areas. So that's why I started to avoid movie theaters and planes and trains and buses and taxis and grocery stores. And, you know, eventually I was avoiding everything. And the only safe space was my home. 
the fir- the first time the first time it manifested itself as a panic attack was one of those those times in the in the theater. Uh, no, uh, I started having them when I was ten. Um, they increased in occurrence, in frequency, yeah. and in severity slowly over the years, and really hit their peak when I was twenty-one, and that's when I stopped going out of the house, or when I was twenty, twenty-one, around that time. Did you, uh, you know, I, I can sort of, you know, I, I can see myself being in that position and kind of, um, you know, r- maybe maybe rationalizing the fact that I'm, you know, I'm a freelance writer that, you know, I guess to some degree at this point I, I could probably live most of my life in, in oh, my apartment. Oh, me too. Absolutely. Yeah. I have to make myself leave. Yeah. I, I still do. I have to make myself leave. You know, I have to say, okay, we're going. I mean, that's one of the reasons I have a dog because it makes me take right. the dog for a walk. Yeah. And I have to make myself do things like do laundry yeah. and go out. And especially when I'm feeling, you know, I also deal with depression so especially when i'm depressed you know then it's like everything's kicking in so it's like not only do i not want to leave the house but i feel sad about it and so that's the worst so um so it's you know it's interesting it's it's an ongoing struggle it's something that i talk about really openly i travel a lot to speak at college campuses about it um i'll be actually on friday march 20th i'll be at truman state university in kirksville missouri if anybody's there the day before I fly to Chicago okay. to have my Chicago adventure. Yeah. Um, and uh, so I travel to talk about it. And I, uh, the reason I do is I want to eliminate the stigma about talking about mm. mental health issues. I want to be more frank about it. I want people to feel like they can talk about it to others. It's interesting because it's not, it, it isn't something that you hear people talk about. You know, depression. And rightfully so, but depression seems like something that, you know, at least like in the, the last you know, several years, something that people talk about pretty regularly, that people acknowledge as a yeah. thing, but I don't really hear people talk. I don't know. Is it, is, it, is it just that it's less common? Is it that people don't really understand it? Um, agoraphobia is less common than depression, but anxiety disorders, yeah. and agoraphobia is an anxiety disorder, they're very common. Yeah. I don't know. I can't cite numbers to you, sure. but a lot of people deal with some form of anxiety, yeah. whether it's a panic attack or it's generalized anxiety or what have you. So um, my point is just to basically tell the kids like, hey, it's okay. Stuff sucks sometimes. There are resources here that you can avail yourself of, yeah. and that is a good thing. Don't be afraid to ask for help. It is a good thing to ask for help. I like that. You know, between this and the the, the, the LGBT stuff you're, you're doing, like you're you've become a like a one woman it gets better campaign. You're Pretty just much. like sort of walking around the country <laughs> telling people that like yeah, it's not always going to be this terrible. Exactly. That's my role in life. To yeah. be like, eh, it'll get better. Yeah, that's. I mean, that's what I want to be in the world is yeah. I want to be someone who makes people feel less alone and better in general. Such a, you know, such a weird mission statement for a comedian you know, in a way, or at least like as an overt mission statement, you know? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I can do that through making people laugh. Like, obviously, yeah. I haven't been hilariously entertaining on this podcast, but um, I can do that through laughter and I can do that through being serious and I can do that in different ways. Yeah. So... Laughter is the vehicle that I use to get my message across. And I think that's true for a lot of comedians. Mine happens to be related to more like mental health type stuff. But for a lot of comedians, it's political. It's it's related to gender. It's related to, you know, race. It's related to whatever. People try to get across their messages it's, through I guess laughter. It just, it just seems like, you know, with, with, with certain, you know, I guess more, more political comics, certain exceptions that um, might sound weird, but that, that stand-up comedy is, is kind of a... In, in some way a sort of a selfish thing to do you know that you're just you're really just working through your 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 own stuff i don't think most people are thinking about it necessarily as as outreach 
Yeah, I mean, I think there are some who do. Like, I would guess that Ted Alexandro might. I would guess that Ryan Singer might. Yeah. I, I certainly think Margaret Cho does. Yeah. Um, it all depends on your personal motivation. You know, some people's motivation is to get rich and famous and make a... And that's cool. I wouldn't mind the rich part. The famous part freaks me out, but the rich part is great. Um, but some everybody has a different motivation for why they get up in the morning and do their job. And we all have to tell ourselves a story about why it is we're doing our job. And that's the story I tell myself. Yeah. And I, I like it. I feel good about it. So you, you, it, it would be hard for you if, if it did feel like you were, you were just kind of doing it because w- without any external motivation? Yeah, I think in, in any work, I need to find some kind of spiritual motivation. Yeah. Um, I, I want to get paid, for sure. I want to <laughs> get paid. That is obviously very important. Yeah. But I have found in my life that if I'm getting paid or I'm acquiring money and I don't feel good about the way in which it was acquired, I'm not going to be a happy person. So what I'm trying to do is say good things and make people laugh and think at the same time, yeah. make them feel less alone and get paid to do that. <laughs> are, you, are you are you at that? I mean, I assume by now, you know, with all these, these books in your belt and everything else you're doing that you're at that point where you can choose jobs based on. Yeah, it's nice. I mean, I'm a full-time writer and comedian, mostly a writer, but I still say comedian because it's fun. You know, sometimes somebody will go, hey, do you want to make jokes about, you know, history on the History Channel? Mm -hmm. Sure. You know, I'll do that. That's fun. Hey, do you want to come on my radio show and make jokes about Valentine's Day? Cool. Go for it. Yes, absolutely. Um, And and then I'll also go and, you know, fly to Missouri and take three three planes to a school in Kirksville and talk about mental health you know it's uh if they they're like can you be funny but also serious Mm. sure i can do that are you ever just serious yeah all the time you know i think i've been pretty serious in this interview actually which is kind of funny i I know i mean it's just insofar as like you you standing on stage not like in your life oh no absolutely i can it's hard though i always want to throw in a joke and like get you know entertain the audience because the laughter the silence can be scary the laughter is is your reward the laughter says oh yes i'm 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 landing with them. They like yeah. this. But, um, yeah, I, it's, it's hard for me not to make a joke at all. It's like, how do you how do you gauge? Like, it's impossible to gauge their reaction unless there's some sort of audible feedback. It's, sometimes that's how I yeah. feel. And if I look at them and they're crying and I want them to cry, that could be good, too. But, um, yeah. Do you ever want the audience to cry? Oh, definitely. Yeah. Sometimes. Sometimes you do. You want them to feel... It's not that I want them to be sad. Yeah. I want them to feel what what I'm saying. Yeah. You know, if if somebody's crying, I realize they're they're feeling some kind of empathetic connection with me, and and that means as a performer, I've done my job. I don't want them to cry when I'm joking, <laughs> but like yeah. if there's a serious portion of the show, which there certainly is, when I talk about you know agoraphobic stuff, um, agoraphobic stuff, then absolutely. Yeah. But agoraphobic now is a pilot in development with the abc family oh, network congratulations thank you yeah. so we'll see what happens with it but it's in development which is fun it's a fun place to yeah. be is that a is it a harder line i mean obviously the the show isn't hasn't been made yet but is, is it is it a harder line to walk in terms of you know of making that funny when you're writing it as a script no, it's actually easier really? because you go for the jokes. You go for you try to load each page with jokes because yeah. each page roughly, you know, it's let's say your script is around 30 pages for a half hour, you know, it's 22 to 30 pages for a half hour show. Um, each each page of script is about a minute of mm-hmm. on-screen time is like sort of the idea that you go with. It's not really true, but yeah. you can kind of fix that in your mind. So you just want to like 
pack as if you're doing a comedy, um, you want to pack as many jokes as possible in yeah. there. It, it's a uh, yeah. I mean, it's you know, I've, I've, been, I've been thinking about it a little bit lately because I don't know, I don't know why I did this. I think I just did this because the reason why anybody watches anything on Netflix. But um, I saw that Mash is on there. Oh wow! And I've gone back and because I don't, you know, it's it's a show that like. You know, a little, I guess a little before my time with, you know, familiarity with, like, syndication and reruns and everything else. But watching them, maybe maybe it's just a little bit dated. Maybe maybe it's just because, like, you know, we're in the golden age of television or whatever now. But it's, man, talk about sort of that ham-fisted trying to walk the line between doing something serious and doing something funny. Well, my, I've never seen a full episode, yeah. but my understanding is that people, it's like joke, joke, joke. Okay, now you're trying to save somebody's life. Joke, joke, yeah. joke. Well, it's really weird. It's really weird watching it, too. I, I don't, you know, to go too far down the match hole, but uh, mm-hmm. uh, something that I just realized now um, was that they, when, when they aired it in the UK, they did it without a laugh track. Oh, really? Which is super interesting. And I guess if you get the DVDs, it's without a laugh track. And when you watch the show, you should go back and watch it. It's, it's interesting because there's certain settings where they won't do laughter. Um, anytime they're in the operating room, there won't be any laughter. Oh, wow. And it's really jarring. Yeah, I'd love to see. I need to see it. I mean, yeah. that theme song is great. Um, it's really beautiful. But you, but you start with you start with the jokes? <laughs> you start, or the jokes are what kind of connect the, the story together for you? Um, you mean in terms of the script? Yeah. Um, well, it's a half-hour comedy. It's yeah. family-oriented. It's very different from Agora Fabulous, the book. You know, the book is pretty raw and gritty, yeah. but the actual the TV pilot is different. It's um, it, The script is sort of, it's, it's more sweet. It, mm. emphas- it sort of looks at a girl who's 23, who's about, who has dealt with these different issues, and now she's coming out of it, and she's ready okay. to go into the world, and how is yeah. her family going to approach that, and how is her, um, how are her new friends going to approach the mm. fact that she has these issues? And so, it's, um, it's really, you know, it's really, I think it's pretty kind and loving. Yeah. Um, and it's, and it's certainly family- uh, it's appropriate for air on basic cable. You it know, was, it, it was pretty clear early on where where the story was going to start for you. Like at least in terms of how it would play on a, a, a family friendly TV pilot. That you know maybe the really rough stuff couldn't couldn't make it into that show. Absolutely, because yeah. this wasn't something that we were pitching to like premium cable. You know, yeah. this was something for originally for networks and then for basic cable. And so you have to mo- you know modulate your voice depending. Yeah. Um, because the audience is different. Yeah. Is it well, you know, it's you know, it's 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 uh, again approaching it from a book seems different from the standpoint of like, you know, you can you can spend as much time with anything as you want. You can explore it any way you want. You know, obviously, you can inject humor into it. But um, do you do you worry when when it's in that very specific that that kind of age old half hour? Um, I hate to use the word sitcom, but sitcom format, just at least in terms no, of like a, a sitcom for half sure. hour it's a comedy. single camera sitcom. It, is do you worry about the possibility that it, it it could be taking something heavy a little too lightly? No, I don't because I have. You know, I wrote the script, and so I adapted. I adapted the book to the script, and so I and I had a lot of help. My executive producers are Diablo Cody, and then um, Red Hour Films, which is Red Hour Television, which is Ben Stiller's company. Okay. And um, so, it has been 
really great. And then we're, we're working with, um, with ABC Studios as well. And so I have all these really brilliant people yeah. who are incredibly well-practiced in the art of television, like teaching me, basically. I feel like I've gone to, to grad school for, um, for television writing, but I, I'm, I'm learning in an apprenticeship kind yeah. of way. And so they've been really helpful. And, and Diablo is, is very much one who likes the joke, but she'll never undercut the seriousness of a situation just to go for the joke. Like she, the jokes arise as they arise and working with her has been really great. And she's been, you know, supervising my writing, which has been a wonderful experience for me for the past few years. So you're, you are, you're working directly with her. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. With all of them. And they've been, I mean, amazing partners. So interesting to work with. Is it is it weird? Like re, you know, obviously you had to re- revisit that story at, at one point to write the book, and now you're re revisiting those years. Yes, I think artists live infinite times because yeah. we live once when we create our piece of art, and then we live again as we revise it, and then we live or again as, it comes to press as and, we live again yeah. as we present it to the world, yeah. and it lives again and again every time somebody reads it or looks at it or listens to it, and everyone brings his or her own emotional background to it so criticism is really fascinating to me because sometimes a critic will say something that's basically like I didn't like that the sky was blue in that scene because the sky was blue the day my parents got divorced you know everybody brings their own baggage baggage to it so you can't take criticism too seriously even though I think Criticism is an art form. I have a friend, David Cody, who is a, a theater critic here in New York, and he is a wonderful critic. And Pauline Kael was a fantastic critic, and Roger Ebert, of course, was like f- amazing. So there's an art to criticism itself, and we can even critique the critic sometimes. But um, when it comes to things like, you know, blog reviews and and Goodreads reviews and YouTube comments and things like that, I can respect that everyone has an opinion, but I don't usually take them too seriously. Um, you know, you can't even take like uh, Publishers Weekly and Kirkus reviews and things like that too seriously. You want them yeah. to in in the book world. You know, you want them to love your book, but if they don't, it can still sell and it can still find its audience. So, I mean, as somebody as a as a comedian who's out there as a comedian who has a you know a social presence. As you know, as a female comedian, which I can only imagine, everything is sort of like it's exponential. When, it's heightened. Yeah, when you're when, when when you're dealing with these people, um, obviously, you know, obviously, you're, you know, you're reading some of the, the reviews, you're reading the more, more high profile ones, but how how much time do you actually spend just reading reading feedback and reading comments and reading tweets? And I spent a lot of time with my first book. I spent less time with my second yeah. book and I plan to spend even less yeah. time with my third book yeah. and then even less time with my fourth book. Yeah. Um, unless if there is a glowing review in the New York Times, I will read it. Yeah. <laughs> but I, it is imperative for me for my own sanity and my own happiness to not read every Amazon review because you'll just go bananas. You know, there are people who have all kinds of motivations for writing reviews. Some are quite genuine and sometimes I have read critical reviews that I thought, oh, wow, I really learned. Yeah. You know, I've even communicated that to a couple of people like, thank you. I know you hated the book, but thank you for putting it that way because you taught me how to be better the next time around. Thank you for being eloquent in your hate. Exactly. Yeah. And insightful in, in your hate. Um, other times it's just mean and it's just garbage yeah. and, you know, 
every time you get on a stage with a microphone, there's someone in the audience who thinks they should be there instead, and they're jealous, but they're too afraid to do it. So then they'll go talk shit about you, and that I think is true for all art forms. It, it, it's again, though, you know, it's 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 got to be particularly difficult when you're working on these books, when you're doing these talks, everything else, and and the idea is to really have a personal effect on the audience and to, in a sense, I guess it's a little bit of a one-way street, but to interact with them. I mean, are you, to some degree, you must be seeking some kind of feedback from them, right? I mean, if you're, sure. you know, oh, if yeah. you're talking you to people who are feedback. in your, your, your position, you want to know that you've affected them in some sure, way. I mean, you, that's, you, if you want positive feedback, that is great. But one thing that I have learned is that if I take the... If I read the negative reviews, if I read the positive reviews and take them deeply to heart, I also have to do the same with the negative reviews because I'm saying, yeah. unless I want to delude myself and say, only people who like me are right, which is a crazy thing to say, um, then it, as long as I'm giving credence to the positive ones, yeah. that means I'm also giving credence to the negative ones. And because we tend, I tend to be a more negative person when it comes to myself, um, I'm going to judge myself harshly, so I'm going to put more stock in the negative ones. I'm going to be like, oh, those people really know what's going on. I mean, I could see a scenario in which I get an amazing, amazing like review in the New York Times, and then I get a horrible, horrible review in, you know, I'm a douche.blogspot.com. It's, it it's a great site. It's a great site, to be fair. It's wonderful. And I would definitely pay more attention to the latter you know to the the terrible (laughs) one and and that's just how my mind works and that's how a lot of us work and so i've just learned that i need to uh not read much of it you know it sucks when people tweet at you and they're like i can't believe this person hated you so much at sarah j benincasa and there's the link no there's the link it's like dude don't do that stop it yeah i I guess i guess i'm i'm talking a little bit beyond just 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 criticism um to the point where uh you know if you to to people who who, who you're actually helping to actually sort of opening up the line of conversation with people who are going through what you went through i mean isn't that isn't that ultimately isn't that isn't that isn't that part of the plan to it is but i also have boundaries with it you know i refer people to people who reach out to me I refer them to specific resources and only on a few occasions have I ever gotten personally involved in some way and finding them help because I just can't because there's just too many people. And also I don't know them. I don't know their whole story. I don't know the full authenticity of the account that they're giving me. And so to protect myself, I can be, I can point them in the right direction, but I can't walk them there. And that's something I had to realize after a little while. And that's actually a benefit of, um, of, Teachers College, uh, Teachers College at Columbia mm. University, where I got my master's degree, I had to learn a lot about setting boundaries with kids and setting boundaries with colleagues and setting boundaries with parents. And so I rely on some of that training actually today in my life as an entertainer and a writer. Yeah, which is kind of funny. What uh, what what do you you know I I, I almost hate to ask this question, but I feel like it's it's an important one, um, especially in this this age where. I mean, everybody, it seems like everybody's career is kind of cobbled together in some way, you know, particularly freelancers, but you've, you've had a, a pretty unique one from the standpoint of it's not just cobbled together from comedy, but it's cobbled together from, you know, all sorts of, all sorts of different places. Um, 
do you consider yourself one one thing above above all others? A writer. Right, right. A writer. Okay. Number one thing. If I never get on a stage again, yeah. that's fine as long as I get to write. Yeah. Okay. Stage is fun for me. Um, and I make some money off it, and that's nice. I get to meet people by doing stage stuff, and that's really cool. But if I were never allowed to be on stage again, but I got, still got to write, uh, that would be okay. Do, do, do you worry? Do you, do you worry that, um, about sort of? I don't want to use the word brand, but do you worry about you know di- about diluting things about maybe spreading yourself a little bit too thin? I do spread myself too thin sometimes, yeah. but w- I like to think of myself as a one-stop shop for opinions <laughs> and feelings. Okay. And so it sounds some, like the internet like, to me. But do you need a girl with an opinion or a feeling? Yeah. This yeah. gal's for you. Yeah. Um, but. Uh, I want to keep the diversity. I want to do lots and lots of things. I think if I were trying to just be a stand-up, yeah. I would, or trying to adjust my goal is to get on the Tonight Show. Yeah. You know, I'd go, all right, Sarah, we need to really refocus. <laughs> um, but it's not. It's um, I want, and, and if my goal were just to be a best, and an New York Times bestseller, I would have to refocus a little bit. But uh, would I love to be on the Tonight Show? Sure. Do I anticipate that happening? No. The bestseller so- thing, I'm more hoping for. <laughs> Um, so uh, it's just, you know, comedy is fun for me. It's, it's, it's a way that I get to get my voice out there, but my true love is always going to be writing, whether it's writing books, it's writing jokes for other people. It's writing copy for a website. It's right. You know, whatever writing uh, a shoe advertisement, like writing is my first love for sure. Yeah. It's, it's, um, so, so, so it's, it's, you feel like it's kind of tempered your, your expectations as far as career goals in a sense well it's changed them my my career goals are quite large when it comes to writing with comedy you know i'm happy with where i'm at i'm a you know semi demi slightly known person Mm -hmm. on the internet in certain corners of the internet and i feel good about that i like it so you'd be happy just being you know a little bit successful in every in everything you do or or not why not you know i'd be happy just being happy i don't have to be you know i'm never gonna be kevin hart yeah i'm never gonna be for any number of reasons for a lot of reasons <laughs> um yeah. he's, but i'm never gonna be him you know i'm never gonna sell out madison square garden yeah. for my comedy i'm okay with that um i think when i look at career role models i look at john hodgman okay. who i adore yeah. personally and who has a great balance of things you know he acts he writes books he's done commercial work he um he gives talks he has a secret society that Mm -hmm. has secret society meetings i'm going to one next week um you know it's he he collaborates with musicians he collaborates with with tv hosts and professional you know artisanal pencil sharpener david reese like and cartoonist i should also say there's huge a huge part of the david reese brand you know John does so much, and I really admire that. And someone else I admire is someone who I just saw last night, which is Neil Gaiman. Mm. He, like, yes, he writes, but what does he write? He writes for children. He writes for adults. He does, he can, you know, his stuff can be appropriate for middle grade. He writes movies. He writes TV. He travels. He performs on his own. He performs with his wife. He performs with other people. He sings now. He, you know, he does lectures. He does all kinds of things. So Neil is a real role model to me, and John is a real role model to me, too. Um, Both of them are examples of who, who I'd you know who I aspire to be like. Hodge, Hodgman is a really interesting case for a, a number of reasons. One, um, my my understanding of his career has always been that like 
He was, you know, he was he was a book editor, and that's what he, he did. He was a literary agent. Yeah, or he was a literary agent. He was agent. a literary agent. And then at, mm-hmm. at some point, it seems like he just decided that he was going to diversify his, his portfolio. He transitioned, yeah. and uh, he it was the Daily Show, I think, that mm. really brought him to the masses. The Daily Show, and then also Apple the Apple commercials, commercials. Yeah. both of those things. And now there are people who who love him from any number of things, from yeah. his podcast, Judge John Hodgman, from. His live appearances, from seeing him on the Nick, from seeing him on, you know, I mean, anything. Like, he can just pop up anywhere. He'll, he popped up on Battlestar Galactica. Like, we, I interviewed him for my podcast. We had a great conversation about this, about how we're both, I think, good at just really liking things. Yeah. And then somehow through force of will or a charm offensive or something mm-hmm. like convincing people in the things that we like to let us hang out with them sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> so for me, I am a professional fan, uh-huh. you know, yeah. like I, I went, my boyfriend and I went backstage last night to see, to see Neil who I hadn't seen in a while and, you know, to say hi. And I just was like struck by, how you know here's this this man who I'm, i who's a lovely person um and i'm such a fan you know i'm such a fan of of what he does i'm such a fan of what john does i'm such a fan of what so many people who i've been fortunate to meet do yeah and it was so great to sit in that audience and then become a new fan of daniel handler who does the lemony snicket series mm. um because neil and daniel were talking to each other on stage and i knew i was a neil gaiman fan but i did not know i was a daniel handler fan until i heard daniel speak and he was so funny it was just amazing and so i became this like th- I, my fandom expanded yeah. you know so i just I, I see people doing things that i would like to do and then i try to figure out how to also do my own version of those things <laughs> I mean, that's uh, Margaret Cho is what who yeah. led me to stand up. Like she didn't know me, yeah. but you know, I wanted to do what she did, yeah. and that's why I even tried stand up at all. It's it, it, it's helpful when you're actually out there making things too, when you have these things in the world that you can show to people that you know. Yeah, you know, you make somebody. I think it was Sark, the author Sark, who said, "Make it real is the most yeah. important thing." Neil said last night on stage, somebody asked him. What's your most important tip for writers? And he said, finish things. Yeah. Um, yeah, making it real, making a thing real is so important. And if you, if you can't manage uh, a full-length big thing, do a small thing. You know, maybe you can't write, uh, sit down and write your novel, and you keep going, oh, I've had this novel for years, and the, but okay, well, screw the novel. Why don't you write an 800-word piece and submit it to a website? Submit it to your favorite website. You know, try and play something in Modern Love in the New York Times, or yeah. they accept submissions. Like, all these places are, all these editors are looking for writers. Um, if you can't make a full, you know, a huge, you know, life-size statue of your father, maybe, you know, make a tiny one out mm-hmm. of Sculpey. Snow globe. Start somewhere. Yeah. You know, making it real reminds you that you can do it. How, how much of, of the, the state of your career now do you feel like is kind of um, a symptom of the time in oh, which you came very much. Along? Very much. Because everything that, is fragmented at this point. I don't, your career is kind of fragmented. It's super fragmented. It's, it's a beautiful mosaic. <laughs> um, I don't think I would... I, I wouldn't have the career that I have... Yeah had I started 20 years ago, it would be different. I would still have one. I just don't know what it would be. I would probably be a more traditional stand-up, you yeah. know, like Rita Rudner, who I used to love when I was younger. I would probably, um, who's still performing. Um, uh, I would probably try to 
I would do the, try to do that, and uh, or I would try to be an author, and that would be what I was devoted to. I we don't know that I would be able to mix the two. The internet has been yeah. a huge part of my career, huge in terms of for me um, in my life, not huge in anyone else's life, but it's been huge for me. The ability to podcast, to make videos, to do all that stuff to reach an audience that otherwise would not know me or care um, to meet people to make friends I've made friends over the internet like I met Hodgman over the internet you know like o- over Twitter yeah. literally like not in some seedy like private fashion over Twitter yeah. <laughs> like not I met I met no not, I met you know John Darnielle from the, Mag- yeah. the Mountain Goats yeah. over Twitter John yeah. Worcester over Twitter like uh, Margaret Cho I eventually met because I sent her a fan letter like years ago I mean and all, and of course, there's a series of events that happened after that. But basically, a lot of it starts with the internet and just being a fan. So if if you like someone, what someone does, um, tell them that. Yeah. Definitely tell them, and don't. But don't say, "How'd you get that?" I hate that. People, how'd you get that? That's so disrespectful because mm-hmm. it makes it sound like, "Oh, I just, deserve, I just snapped that? my fingers." Because yeah. mm. um, the answer is hard work and yeah. a little bit of luck, yeah. or a lot bit of luck and a little bit of hard work. But hard work is there, and luck is there. So um, if, if you're, you know, if you're listening and you're like, how I, I want to do a podcast, but I don't know how, um, maybe you should email the host of this podcast and ask him, to, but don't ask. Talk about a low barrier of entry. Hey, man. It, no, it's cool. It's yeah. like a prominent thing. I yeah. mean, you know, Boing Boing is huge. Like this is, you know, your podcast is popular and you're distributed by a popular thing. I don't know what to call it. A popular site, a popular <laughs> network entity. Thing will do. I mean, brand. Like, yeah, and I think a lot of folks don't realize that the tools are in their hands now, or they can be. You just got to save up money and go to Best Buy and get what you need. And hey, is your is it going to be as pop? Is your podcast about cats going to be as popular as this podcast right away? No, I mean cats though. Well, cats are amazing. It might yeah. be. It seriously yeah, might be. It could. Actually, let me backtrack. Could actually, pass me by it could, pretty quickly. It could pass yeah. all of us by. Zero cats on this. You show. could be the richest person yeah. in the world, but. You know, you need some time, and you need to you need to put the time in. Yeah. You know, I saw somebody recently who has beautiful branding on all her stuff, wants to turn her blog into a book. That's great, but you know, she's got like a hundred Twitter followers yeah. and I guess two hundred Facebook likes. Branding's beautiful. All that stuff is in place. It reminded me of when I started stand up, and I just immediately wanted to be on Comedy Central, <laughs> and I got an audition. And the note that I got was, "She needs more time." Mm-hmm. She's got potential. She needs more time. She hasn't done this enough. It was the best note I ever got in that. Not the kindest, but the best in that I was like, oh, that's so true. I do need more time. Did you really? You took it with that much stride that, that, that right away? You didn't... Right away, I was like... I, there was a part of me that was resistant that was like, no, I'm ready. I feel like we're all a little entitled when it comes to sure, stuff like, like that. Sure. No, I'm ready. And it's like, I was a year in. I wasn't ready. I'm not yeah. ready now. I mean, maybe I am. I'm ready for something. <laughs> like, if I could probably perform, I could act on a show. But yeah. if they were like, okay, you're going to get a half hour stand up, no way. I don't yeah. have a half hour. Are you kidding? I don't even have five minutes right now. Like, uh, that, I, that I would like well enough to be on TV. You know what I mean? Like, I have, I can talk about plenty of stuff. I can, I got plenty of jokes, but like, something that's good enough to be my legacy on TV like I don't think so you know and and it was great that they said that because that's what I needed and so and later you know I got back in got back in the room with those people and I you know have 
had auditions for repeated auditions for shows that I really admire that I really like and um, I haven't necessarily gotten them <laughs> or yeah. at, at all gotten them but I take the approach that it's an with some things it's just an honor to even be asked yeah. it really is to be like I have this audition you guys and tell your friends you get so excited and have zero expectation that you'll actually get it because you probably That's won't yeah yeah if you once I realized that have zero expectation be excited that you're walking into Comedy Central or into HBO yeah. or into wherever like feel the excitement like you know, get excited! You're you're going to Target to buy a fifteen dollar dress because that's what you can afford this mm-hmm. week, uh, and and you're gonna, you're, but you're gonna try out for this TV show that you love, or you're, you have a meeting in this place. I mean, when I go, whenever ABC Studios is headquartered at Disney, and whenever I go to Disney. I'm like, I take pictures because there's like an animation building. It looks like Mickey's Sorcerer's Hat. They've got old original animation cells from Snow White up on the wall. Uh, all that stuff. Like, I'm, I'm into it, man. When I go into places to pitch, to networks, and I'm like, I don't think they're going to like this. I don't care. Yeah. Like, I, I, like, I don't want to waste their time. I'm going to put my everything into pitching, but also I'm going to take joy in the fact, like, I'm, oh, I'm in the CBS yeah. building. Like, this is where they make, like, whatever show, you know? Like, oh, hey. You know, I get it. You got to be a fan. Like, be a fan first and foremost. That's something I love about Patton Oswalt is that he's a fan. He's such a fan and so open about his fandom, which I, I just love. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, just be a dork. Don't be afraid to be a dork. Yeah, and sort of realize that this was a, c- a conversation that I had um, I had had Tom Sharpling on the show a while ago. And oh, he's great. Yeah. I don't know him personally, but I really like his style. Well, he's, uh, you know, it, it's funny because we, we were sort of having a conversation about um, about success and about how relative of a notion success is, where I think everybody <laughs> every everybody measures their own success by some really large yardstick, where yeah. they feel like they're unsuccessful because exactly. there's always somebody a little bit a yes. little bit higher than you are oh yeah so maybe people aren't necessarily putting themselves on the same pedestals that that we are as oh there are people yeah i mean i'm sure if you ask pat or yeah. if you ask john or maybe even if you ask neil there'd be something that they wanted to do that they haven't done yet or some place they've gotten to or you go who's a real master of your craft yeah. and they go oh my gosh this so and so you know like this person is a real fill in the blank writer, actor, comedian, whatever. Um, yeah, we all tend to put ourselves down a bit. I mean, for me, I, I always measured success by money. I thought if I were rich, that would mean I was successful. Yeah. And now I've realized, like, nah, I, I get paid to do what I love. Like, that's awesome. And you know why I can afford to keep the lights on? Because I also live with somebody who has a real job. Yeah. And, you know, he can afford to keep the lights on, too. Yeah. And so there's that. There's that aspect of it. The, the aspect of having a partner who's supportive is something that I don't think is really emphasized enough. But I look at all these comics who are out there and I'm like, at some point along the line, there was somebody there putting the kids to bed. You know, there was somebody there who helps fix their meal. Mm-hmm. Now, there are some people who came from nothing with no help and scraped their way up. Absolutely. But I am saying that if they're if they're married or they're in a relationship or something like that, yeah. you know, nobody looks at Louis C.K. and goes, oh, my God, how does he do it? He's got two girls. <laughs> well, you know, he also has like a, a mother of his children mm-hmm. who's very involved, and I'm sure he has access to child care yep. now and things like that. Um Success doesn't happen in a vacuum. Like, success doesn't happen alone. Along the way, somebody saw you and wanted to help mm-hmm. in some way. 
And whether that came in the form of a great manager, an agent, an older comic, uh, a, another writer, somebody who listened to you, somebody who gave you a phone number, an email address, yeah. or somebody who raised your kids for you. Like, that, you know, it doesn't happen magically. How, how pragmatic were you early on? Um, you know, insofar in, in as, like, you know, obviously... You, 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 the first thing you need to worry about is is keeping the lights on at some sure. point, you know. And 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 when you're when you've got all these different options in front of you, one of them starts to pay off earlier than the other one. So maybe that's the path that's that you where pursue. you go in the direction of. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, I went into a lot of credit card debt, <laughs> uh, which I'm still in. Not recommended. Paying off. Not recommended. But if you need to fund your dreams, hey. Yeah credit card debt. Um, I took money from my parents. That sounds like I stole money from them. I stole money from them. Um, they knew about it. They knew about, yeah, they yeah. knew. I was stealing from them and they knew about it. Yeah. Um, I worked all kinds of jobs. You know, I, I, gosh, I was a paralegal at a law firm specializing in immigration for fashion models. I was... It's the most weirdly specific job I Very think I've ever specific. Yeah. I was a, uh, I worked at a pharmaceutical magazine I, gosh, I was, I freelanced writing copy for different places. I, I would do, you know, whatever, all, not whatever, but there were times when I really considered like all kinds of jobs, you know, I just was like, all right, Craigslist, what do you got today? Yeah. And here in New York City, you know, I worked in a doggy, a doggy store, a st- not like they didn't sell dogs, but um, they sold like yeah. dog accoutrement, like $300 doggy mm-hmm. beds and stuff like that in the Upper East Side. Um, I, you know, always like, gosh, I freelanced for so many websites over the years, so many. <laughs> Mo- Nerve.com was the first big one that yeah. gave me a shot. I, I hear the question asked like, and... and- for whatever reason, particularly of comedians, um, of you know, p- people ask like, when 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 did your parents recognize that you're doing something? But that to me, that's less of an interesting question than at what point did you realize? At what point did you consider yourself? If if you do, at what point did you consider yourself a success, or you know, that you were on that you were doing the right thing, that you were on the right path, that you weren't wasting your life? I think. Um Probably when I used to do these Sarah Palin vlogs with my friend Diana mm-hmm. Saez, um, and we were this like comedy duo, and we got hired by the Huffington Post to do um, all these videos, and that they went viral, and I got interviewed on TV and for newspapers and all kinds of stuff in 2008. I think that's when it, it really hit me because I started actually getting attention for my comedy, and it wasn't for stand up; it was for uh, performing it was for Im- it was for improvising and character work but that's really when yeah. it hit me that that's when it felt real and i was still working at i think i was still working at the pharmaceutical magazine at that point in time and then uh, soon after that later that year i got a job at sirius xm and so that was big this is yeah i mean this is this is this kind of plays into what uh, Neil Gaiman said and, and the idea of fragmentation. Um, the, the the really difficult part, and I assume that this is I, I've I've been dealing with this a lot myself because I you know I came off of like ten years of just straight writing for you know full time jobs for specific sites to being a, a freelancer. Um, it's so you know it's so hard to figure out what to invest your time in. It's mm-hmm. it, you know it's it, it's hard to figure out. 
you know, with, without, without like instant gratification, without knowing that people are enjoying that particular thing, like, you know, how, how do you know, how do you know that that's a thing worth turning your life over? You have to really love it so much. Yeah. I think, I think you have to love it so much that you can't not do it. That's what I think. Yeah. I mean, I talked to Hodgman about this and he was like, he's like, oh, I could easily <laughs> not do anything but commercials for the rest of my life. And I'm like, well, that's still acting. He's like, is it? Yeah. Um, he's like, no, it would be great to just make sweet so bank it, all the time. <laughs> um, but I think you have to feel like you can't not do it. Yeah. Um, I mean, perhaps that's also a bit of madness. There's a bit of madness to, yeah. to, to artistry, I think. Uh, you have to feel like this is my number one thing. This is, I would, you know, when I'm sitting hunched over, like tonight after this, I'm going home and I'm writing an article for Playboy.com about uh, a cosplayer named Ivy Doom Kitty. And I'm writing a piece about representation of women in media, also for Playboy.com, oddly enough. And that great feminist magazine. Hey, man, they're doing some good stuff. You should read the website, playboy.com. It's got some good stuff. I write for them a lot. Just for the articles. And Oh, yeah, it's got great articles. You know, uh, Margaret Atwood has written mm. for Playboy. Oh, well. no, I did oh yeah. yeah. They, um, gosh, who else has written for Playboy? I mean, so many people, um, Barbara Streisand was on the cover once upon a time. I mean, these are some pretty, you know, hard-heading yeah. feminist sure. gals. Like, yeah. they've, uh, they have a wonderful, and they've always published amazing fiction, and yeah, they yeah. had, I mean, I just, you know, I'm a fan. Um, so they, and they let me rant about weird things, which is great. But, you know, I'm going to stay up late and yeah. to do it, to finish my stuff. And there's like nothing I'd rather be doing except maybe, I don't know, sitting on stage, telling the story. That would be yeah. fun too, but that's equally as fun to me. So writing is just my favorite thing. Yeah. It's, and, and that's, that's, that's sort of where depression plays a role too, is because that's, you know, if <laughs> that's it's a, it's a dangerous game when it's when you're trying to figure out something you can't not do. But depression is pretty good at convincing you that yeah, that's you where don't need to do anything. Medication and physical exercise yeah. as medication comes into play for me. Like it just has to. It has to. And physical exercise is something I've just added, but it's really a form of medication yeah. for me because I, you know, I don't self-medicate with alcohol. I don't self-medicate with drugs uh, other than the, you know, delicious Prozac and Abilify that I take. Some good tea. Some good stuff. But um, I also need to, I need to exercise. I need to be creative. Like there are all these things I need to do to want to live. <laughs> so, you know, my my days are busy. Are you? Do you ever? Do you ever give you, yourself time to slow down? Um, sometimes, yeah. yeah. But my version of slowing down isn't necessarily like as ideal as it could be. Yeah. Um, the idea of just sitting and chilling out on a beach for a, a day—it sounds maddening. I don't like it. <laughs> yeah. Um. I, I could do it for a day, but yeah. I'd have to be able to check my email at the yeah. beginning of the day. I just, I feed off of the energy of being engaged, and I, I love that stuff. I, I get a natural high off of writing a piece and seeing people pass it around and talk about it in a mostly favorable fashion. There you go. That was Sarah Benincasa. Uh, thanks so much to Sarah for sitting down, drinking some tea, talking about comedy, agoraphobia, and all those other fun things in... 
guess in so much as, as agoraphobia is a, a fun a fun thing to talk about. Um, if you did enjoy that conversation, Agora Fabulous is out now as an audiobook. You can, you can check that out. Um, thanks. I have, a, I have a, a press release sitting right in front of me about the, the, the recently released audiobook version of Agora Fabulous from, uh, from Heidi at Shark Party. And it says that she is also available to talk about panic attacks, comedy, agoraphobia, etc., which is a pretty pretty fun thing for a press release to say and i i think that we did a pretty good job i think over the course of that hour i think we managed to to hit all of those things uh pretty well and also talk about you know success success creative success is a very fascinating thing to me right now it's very interesting to watch people's people's careers online you know it seems seems like 10 15 years ago it just you, you set your sights on one very specific thing and you hammered away at that thing and these days i think sarah's a really good example of somebody who's just kind of been you know is creative all over the place and just sort of you know puts puts things out there as i i i said during the interview uh sort of cobbling together a career which i realized like after i realized that after i said it it sounded like sort of a a, a weird thing to say but i you know i think she she took it with with stride and, and understood that you know that you just you you you, you, you get out there you should you do some writing you do some comedy maybe Maybe you you uh, you know do an impression of, of Sarah Palin from time to time, and uh, once once all is said and done, and, and you look back, you actually have made some some sort of career for yourself. So uh, thank you so much uh, to her for for doing that. Um, I you know I met her. Uh, this is probably not an interesting story, but I'm going to tell it anyway because you have been listening to this podcast for about an hour, and um, you know maybe maybe you're trapped somewhere and you know don't have use of, of your hands, so you know you're stuck with me. Uh, I met her a a few years back. I, I used to do uh, some programming for a comic show in independent co- comics, as in comic comic books, an independent comic show in. Um, in New York City, and we were doing some live live verse recordings, and she was uh, she was recommended uh, to me to do that, and she did a fantastic job. So, you know, you should follow her. I just realized after I finished that 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 wasn't even a story or an anecdote. That was just that was literally just a thing that happened at some point. But that's how I first became familiar with Sarah Benincasa. Uh You should follow her on Twitter, if only to see all of the things that she does. Just you know, just like just to sort of like to take in the breadth of the uh, of, of the amount of things and the diversity of things that she does online, because she seems to always have uh, something new going on. To the point where uh, you know, we recorded this interview. I, I guess about a month ago. I, I have no concept of time, but uh, it was maybe a few weeks ago. But I don't think we even really ended up touching on. Um, her Kickstarter project, which which went up very recently, um, so uh, I have there's an addendum. We don't do this a lot, but because because here's the thing, right? So this is this is the problem with 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 uh, with doing all these things in advance. Is, is stuff happens between the recording um, and, and 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 the posting of a conversation, and oftentimes it's been a, it's been a bad thing. In one case, um, one of the people that we spoke with, uh, she she ended up losing her job. In another case, um, somebody uh, or possibly a group of people ended up uh, losing a TV show that they once had. So you know, it definitely changes the um, 
the sort of the, the tenor of the conversation. But this is an instance where a good thing has happened. So a uh, little addendum at the end of the show, a, an added 10-minute uh, Skypey conversation with Sarah about uh, about her new project, The Focus Group, which you can go support over on Skype. Uh, in the meantime, you can support our program in a few ways. We have a Facebook page now, which is exciting. I guess um, you, can, you should like us over on Facebook. We put some stuff over there. Uh, fun, fun things happening there. Um, uh, I don't actually have a Twitter thing, but you know you can follow me on Twitter. It's uh, Beheater. Follow me over on Twitter, uh, Tumblr with a, a, a Tumblr site. It's rewildcast.tumblr.com. That is the first and best place to find episodes of the show. They go up there uh, long before they go up anywhere else. Um, you can uh, find us through the Boing Boing Podcast Network over over at iTunes. Lots of other good shows over there. Um, and anyway, you know, while you're over at iTunes, take the opportunity to rate the show if you liked what you heard. If you didn't, please don't do that. Please don't tell. Please don't tell anybody about how little you enjoyed the, the program. Uh, uh, email email address is rwellcast at gmail.com uh, send us feedback there uh, thanks to Brian as always for editing this thing together oh uh, next week the um, the uh, 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 the so this is episode 98 and the, the 99th and 100th episode of the show will be um, dropping next week the, the 99th will it will be an interesting thing um, I I put it together myself because I didn't want Brian to have to sit through some of the interviews there. It's a, it's, um, it's, I, I guess it's, I'm calling it sort of the odds and sods of the show. So this is, this is a lot of, um, these are things that for, for various reasons, which I explain in, in full gory detail, did not end up making it onto the show in the first place. Uh, but some really good, fascinating interviews, not good, no, fascinating interviews with, with good and fascinating people, some bad and fascinating interviews with some good and fascinating people. Dick Gregory, for example. Uh, the the uh, the the black lips, uh, lots of lots of interesting people on that thing next week, and then episode 100 of the show will drop. It's I'm very excited. I uh, recorded this one last week. It's with uh, one of just a. Uh, uh, I don't want to give too. I don't want to give too much. I don't want to give too much away. Um, but um, it's with two people uh, who their forces combined have. Um, have been very, very uh, uh, impactful on my life. So I'm very, very excited to put that up. And a lot of other fun things coming up for for episode 100. So stay tuned for that. And uh, you're here already, so you might as well stay tuned for uh, for another quick bite of Sarah Benacasa talking about the focus group. I will catch you guys next week. Enjoy! This is this is this is one of the 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 um, the big risks of 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 kind of you know backlogging interviews is is things happen between the recording of an interview and the posting of an interview. Um, one time, uh, somebody that I was talking to about her job lost her job. Another time, a bunch of people in a sketch comedy group um, had their show canceled. So, but yours is good news. Mine is very good news. Yeah, mine is awesome news. Um, we hit our halfway mark with the Kickstarter, and we brought on best-selling author of Bad Feminist, Roxanne Gay, who is a new, newly minted New York Times opinion contributor. Uh, we brought her on as associate producer, so I'm super excited. I really, cause I, I don't think we actually had a, a chance to talk specifically about about the project because this uh, again we recorded this um, a, a while back. Uh, but it's I, I wanted to get you on the Skype because it's 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 super fascinating. So now you're like I know there's more to it, but the um, 
it seemed like the 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 big Twitter pitch is that you will be in various states of undress. Well, the big Twitter pitch is is that I'm doing a short film about body image, and I am a woman who is uh, not tiny, and I will be in various states of undress uh, proudly and happily and painfully and frightened deadly. <laughs> I don't know. I'm I'm you know dealing with my emotions about it certainly, and my feelings about it are complex, but. Um, I am going to do a film called The Focus Group, and it's a comedy short in which a woman focus groups her own body, which I think is an, uh, is essentially what, what we do looking at the body as product. Now, this was something, this was something that you wrote yourself? Uh, yes, I'm on the second draft, actually, and I think we'll go through two more drafts, hopefully no more than two more drafts, before we actually... Uh, launch, you know, before we shoot. We're shooting at the end of May. So uh, what, uh, and and again, I know this isn't the folks, but uh, you know, at what point, at some point you realize that if you're, if you're writing this thing and you're starring in this thing, that you're going to have to go through these things that, that that you're writing for yourself. At at what point, at what point are you, do you kind of, do you fully commit yourself to, to this idea? Um, Well, I was committed from the beginning. I mean, the idea came from my concept was being fully naked in front of a a focus group. What would happen if a woman did that? Because it's what we do to ourselves in the mirror every day, the voices in our head of criticism telling us, oh, your, your belly's too fat, your hips are too fat, your bush is too weird, your tits are too saggy, like whatever, whatever your particular thing or things are. Um, we do that to ourselves every day. And I think that society does that to us in a sense by telling us constantly that your skin could be smoother or lighter. That's a big one. Your uh, hair could be straighter. Your nose could be smaller. Your eyes could be bigger. All this different stuff. And, and then provides us with products that can achieve that goal. So I thought, well, what if we just, what if we made it real? And what if we made a, a comedy short about this, a dark comedy short? And I knew that I wanted to be in it because I'm not going to pay anyone else enough to warrant them getting naked for my short. Um, I'm not going to pay myself anything. And I also think that I have the right body for it. And so I don't have the right body for a lot of things in Hollywood, but I have the right body for this role that I'm creating for myself. So uh, I thought, you know, fuck it, I'll go for it. And so right now we're talking about how we're going to shoot it because we want it to be accessible to people who are dealing with body image issues, which is everyone. But in order for it to be accessible, it has to be suitable. And for example, on YouTube, Nudity yep. is not suitable. So we have to figure that out. So it's, it's, I think for me, what's more important than seeing the bush and the tits is seeing my belly, seeing my hips, seeing my, my, um, love handles, seeing the parts of me that are, are not actually sexual necessarily, um, but that are, uh, are, are less than what I want them to be. And that's really interesting to me. So I, I don't know if I will be, you know, fully naked. I mean, my cast is going to see me naked. So congratulations to them. But um, I don't know that I will be it'll be like, hey, here's Sarah totally nude. Uh, You know, I think it it, people may be pleasantly or unpleasantly surprised by what they see. We're figuring it out. Uh, We may another option is to do two cuts like we may do one version for Vimeo and for festival submission and one version for YouTube. So we're we're figuring it out. Do, do you run the risk if you do if you do get if you do you know show more than than just your stomach? Do you run the risk of you know being a little sort of 
prurient, <laughs> that being, you know, a no. little bit of the, the, the selling point of, of the short? It's not me being prurient. I think it's other people bringing that to sure. it. And so, um, you know, there's going to be people who watch it and jerk off and, hey, you know, more power to you. Just don't fucking tell me about it or talk to me about it, you fucking weirdo. But I understand that. You know, uh, that's not the point. It's not a sexual thing. I think it's you'll see when it how it's done and how it's framed and how it's portrayed. It's it's a humiliating and painful and scary and funny experience. So it's certainly not going to be eroticized or sexualized. That won't be the way the camera is that the, the camera's eye certainly won't be a sexual eye. Um, the viewer's eye may be a sexual eye and that's fine. You know, whatever, just don't bother me about it or talk to me about it. And I'm fine. Like we do what you need to do with this short, but that's not my aim isn't to give people boners. Um, my aim is to get people talking about body image and I, I, I don't disdain their boners or anything. It's just, that's fine. That that's, that's, um, you know, just sort of ancillary, like that's extra congratulations if you get a boner from seeing me naked that's fine that's like your your kickstarter reward level is that you yeah <laughs> you get a free erection yeah i mean if you get an erection like cool buddy but you know or lady if your clitoris is engorged with blood by my presence that's fine but um you know it's really about uh it's about taking the idea of picking oneself apart and making it almost literal, having people actually analyze different parts of one's body. It's really sort of every woman's and, and many men's nightmares, I think. And it's, so it's a nightmarish comedy. Well, you know, what's, what's, what's really interesting to me, and I, I don't know how closely uh, scripted this is going to be in the end, but, you know, you're on your second draft, so it, it sounds like you're, you're, um, you're, you're writing words to come out of other people's mouths. So you really, uh, I mean, in a sense, you, you, you have to be the focus group on your own body, right? If you're writing, mm -hmm. if you're writing other people's reactions to what you look like. Absolutely. So what I'm doing is I'm personifying my own fears and my own resentment and my own sadness about my own body. And I'm giving it voice in the form of my actors in the form of characters. Um, so I'm, I'm, it's almost like Herman's head in a sense, <laughs> uh, to make a very old reference, but yeah, that's, that's what I'm doing. I'm, I'm make, instead of those voices just being inside my head, they're going to come from real people. So it's I mean it's 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 going to be pretty pretty brutal. Yeah, oh yeah. Oh definitely. I mean we will define the term fupa, look it up. Um <laughs> and uh it's going to be really funny and it's going to be brutal and it's going to be I think ultimately uplifting and and very fun. I think ultimately it's a story of of wickedly accepting oneself including the bits that are not as society would have them. You, uh, you, you, you went, you, you went to Kickstarter on this one. This is not the first time you, you've gone to Kickstarter, so you clearly know how to do some, uh, some, some rewards tiers. What is the, um, what, what, what is the best reward you can get out of this thing? I mean, I other than, you know, other than watching it and enjoying it, obviously. The best reward would be becoming an associate producer. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but okay, what is the craziest reward? I guess is maybe a better question. The craziest reward would perhaps be having cheesecake with me at Junior's Cheesecake in Brooklyn. Um, you can also get a fairy oracle reading from me via Skype. You can get. I don't know a, what that means. What? Oh well, I just use my fairy cards, oh, and we just you know look at your life. Um, also, you can get a. I believe it's a five to ten minute Skype session where we talk about either the Denzel Washington film The Equalizer, mm. or we talk about your favorite food. I'm excited about that one. What is uh, before we go? What is your favorite food? Is it pretzels? pretzels. Oh, it's oh, it's pretzels. Mm -hmm. Oh, big, uh, hot pretzels. Oh, big, 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 soft pretzels. Soft pretzels, specifically made by an Amish person. 
That's my ideal. If there's an Amish behind, if it can't be an Amish person, it could be a German street corner peddler. But, uh, you know, I'd prefer it be an Amish person. All right, there you go. Thank you. Uh, thanks. Thanks so much for, for taking the time. Of course. Thank you so much, Brian. Thanks for having me back for this hot update. <laughs>